But I want you to know that there were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke about Jesus. Over 300 prophecies, some of them hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth. And they're all talking about his first coming. And everybody takes those prophecies literally. So in other words, when it talks about unto us, a child is born, unto us, a son is given in the book of Isaiah, nobody looks at that and says, I don't think that's really about Jesus. I think that was just sort of a word picture about something else. Everybody agrees that all those prophecies should be taken literally. And we believe in applying the exact same approach to all of the prophecies in the Bible that talk about Jesus' second coming. And by the way, there are three times as many prophecies about Jesus' second coming than there were about his first. Three times as many. This prophecy is so incredible that for almost 2,000 years, nobody believed it could be taken literally. But as you'll always find with God's word, he wants us to take it literally unless there's a clear reason not to. The prophecy and events that we're about to talk about are considered by most, including me, to take place after the rapture during what's known as the tribulation period. If you don't know what the rapture or the tribulation are, pick up the end time CD before you leave today. It'll help you come to an understanding on that. So why would we be interested in an event that takes place after the rapture of the church, after the church has been removed and gone to be with Jesus? Why would we care about that? Because we can reverse engineer those events. And here's what I mean by reverse engineer. If we know this world event is going to take place according to the Bible, after the church has been removed from the earth, we can look at this event and say, what pieces have to be moved into place to set that up? And we can watch for those things because we may be able to see those dominoes essentially being lined up before the event happens and before the church is removed from the earth. And here's what that tells us. When we see those events lining up, we know we are really close to the rapture of the church. I heard one guy describe it like this. They said, when you go to Costco and you see Christmas decorations, you know it's almost Thanksgiving. (laughs) That's the picture that we're talking about here. When we see these events lining up, we know that the rapture must be really, really close. This prophecy also matters because it reminds us that the Bible is a super natural, living book. It is alive. Write this down. This is going to be your first fill-in. When the Bible perfectly predicts global events more than 2,600 years beforehand, you have no choice but to acknowledge that it must come from somewhere outside of our own space-time continuum. I guarantee you there is no other church this morning meeting with the fill-in space-time continuum. We are the only one, I promise But here's why this is so important, because every major religion has their book, their holy scriptures, their sacred writings. There is no other faith or religion in the world that is built on predictive prophecy. In other words, these things were spoken hundreds or thousands of years in advance, and they have happened irrefutably documented in history. So if you are genuinely interested in pursuing truth and you encounter writings that are inarguably precise and accurate, predicting the future perfectly, you have to confront the fact that this has to be something more than just a book unless you are hard set on dismissing the truth even when it's right in front of you. So if we see this and it's inarguable, we have to confront the truth that this book 
has to come from somewhere else outside of the time-space continuum that we are functioning in because whoever wrote it has knowledge of things that take place thousands of years in the future. And when we encounter that, even as believers, it's a healthy shock to our system because it reminds us, oh right, there's a difference between my Bible and chicken soup for the soul. This is not just light bedtime reading. This is something serious. This is something profound. This is something divine and holy. And even as believers, we are shocked back into elevating the word of God into its rightful place in our lives. We also need reminding that Jesus is the one who is orchestrating global events to arrive at the destination of his exact choosing. What sometimes appears as global chaos will in fact cause and result in the very things Jesus wants to see happen He holds all things in his hands and he's the only one who's able to speak of the future and then cause it to come to pass. Nobody else can do that. I love what Proverbs 19 says. It's on your outline. It says, there are many plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's plan that will stand. Some of us in this room need to be reminded that if God can orchestrate something as complex as global and future history across the nations of the earth and across the millennia, if he can do that, then I think he can keep his promises to you. If he can do that, then I think he can provide for you when he says he's going to provide for you. I think he can sustain you when he says he'll sustain you. I think he can get you through anything when he says he'll get you through anything. I think you can build your life on his word and you can take it to the bank. Ezekiel 36 through 39 is split into two parts. We're going to study chapters 38 and 39 today. But chapters 36 and 37 deal with the event of Israel becoming a nation again after almost 2,000 years. Flip over to Ezekiel 36. I'm going to say that now because some of you are going to need to go to the table of contents to find where Ezekiel is. So as I said, this prophecy was written around 2,600 years ago about 600 years before Jesus was even born. Check out Ezekiel 36, verse 3. That's where we're going to start. Ezekiel 36, verse 3. You're going to need a pen because we're going to do a lot of underlining and note-taking today. It's going to be fascinating. Ezekiel 36, 3. It says this. God is speaking to Ezekiel, and he says, Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Because they made you, Israel, And then underline the word desolate, desolate, and swallowed you up on every side so that you became the, and then underline, possession of the rest of the nations, possession of the rest of the nations. And you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. So God tells Ezekiel to prophesy that Israel would become the possession of the rest of the nations. Now go down to verse 8 because that's not where the story ends. Verse 8, it says, but you, and then underline, O mountains of Israel, and underline that whole next sentence, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel. That line, my people Israel, is really important because there are some church movements, entire denominations that teach that God is done with Israel and that we, the church, have replaced Israel. We are the new Israel. But they're dead wrong. They are dead wrong because God has not abandoned his people Israel. And here we're going to find in the last days, he refers to them as what? My people, Israel. My people, Israel. You'll also see where the Lord says, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit. 
In our End Times mini-series, we, we talked about what's known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus shares in Matthew 24 about End Times events prophetically, and he talks about Israel as a fig tree, and he says, when you see the fig tree begin to come back to life, that generation that sees that happen will not pass away before all these things take place. And he speaks of everything that's going to happen in the end times. And that line where he says, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit is an allusion to that same verse in Matthew 24 talking about the fig tree. It's the same imagery. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Listen to our end time series. It's available in the back. I should be charging money for that because I'm plugging it like I'm selling it. But it's free in the back. You can get it. It continues and it says, for they are about to come. Verse 9, for indeed I am for you and I will turn to you and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, the nation of Israel. So I'll, I'll cause a bunch of men to be born in your nation. All the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be, underlined inhabited, And the runes rebuilt, underline the runes rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, for they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you. And then underline again, my people Israel, very specific. They shall take possession of you, the geographic area of Israel. They'll take possession of it. And you shall be their inheritance No more shall you bereave them of children. Now slide down to verse 24 of the same chapter and then underline this whole line. He says in verse 24, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Very, very clear. What he's saying is there's going to be a time when Israel is scattered across all of the nations, across all kinds of countries, and he's going to bring them all back together into their land. That took place in 1948 when after World War II, Israel became a nation again. And then in chapter 37, the story just continues. I want you to check out verse 21 of chapter 37. Verse 21, chapter 37. When it says, Then say to them, And you want to underline this whole verse. Thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the, what's the word there? Nations, plural, wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. They're going to come back into the geographic land of Israel, which we saw in 1948. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation. That's important. One nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king, that's important, shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. You may or may not know that after King Solomon died, Israel was split into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. And so this prophecy is very, very distinct. It says Israel is going to be scattered across the earth, but when God brings them back together in the future, they're going to be one nation, not divided, under one ruler. Again, that's exactly what we saw happen in 1948. And then now we come to this fascinating, fascinating prophecy in chapters 38 and 39. We're just going to jump ahead for one second. I want you to look at verse 8 of chapter 38, just to give us the time frame of when this prophecy takes place. Verse 8, chapter 38 says, After many days you will be visited. So it's going to be a long period of time before God brings them back. In the, and then underline latter years. Latter years. Some of your translations may even say the last days. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from, underline, many people. 
on the mountains of Israel, and then underline, which had been long desolate. So the idea is Israel's going to sit, it's going to be desolate, it's going to be a wasteland for a long, long time. Then in the last days, the latter years, God's going to bring them back in. So when do these events take place? In, in what the Bible would call the last days. And this prophecy has to take place, write this down, after Israel is back in the land. It has to take place after Israel is back in the land. So it has to take place after 1948, because before that, Israel isn't in the land. And you're going to find that it's impossible for this prophecy to happen without Israel being in the land. So let's dive into chapter 38. We're going to start in verse 1. It's going to seem confusing, but we're going to break it down and make it real simple. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Don't name your kids Rosh or Meshach or Tubal. Those are horrible names, horrible names. Verse 1 and 3 are the setup for all of this. Some names are given, but names change over time and across history. You know, in Russia, St. Petersburg for a time was called Leningrad. And then now it's gone back to St. Petersburg. Even when I was growing up, I was a big cricket fan, grew up in South Africa. And I remember when we would play against India, we would play in one of the cities called Bombay. And Bombay is now called Mumbai. And so names change across history, even though places stay the same. And so let's go through this list of names here, and we're just going to explain what each of these names means in our modern-day vernacular. So Gog just means leader. It just means leader. And in this case, it's the leader of the land of Magog. Magog is the area that we would call the former Soviet states, the former Soviet states, places like the Ukraine and every country that ends in Stan basically. Those are the former Soviet states. That's Magog. Rosh is simply the area that we would call Russia. Rosh is Russia. And Meshach is Moscow. Moscow, you want to write that down. Tubal is what's known today as the Siberian city of Tobolsk. There's some scholastic debate on the meaning of these names, but I'm on this side for very good reason. And I think by the time we're done, you're going to be on that same side as well as we go through this. So this prophecy is addressed to Gog, the man who at this time will be the military leader of Russia and the Soviet states. Gog's location in relation to Israel is north. So if you pull out a map and you go straight north, you'll basically run straight into Moscow if you're going from Israel straight north. You'll run into Russia and Moscow. If you take a look in verses 6 and 15 of chapter 38, you're going to see Gog is referred to as being in the far north. The idea is it's an area so far north that at the time this is written, they don't really know anything about it. They just know it's the far north. However, your Bible says that you want to underline that. Both verse 6 and verse 15, the far north. And then also in chapter 39, verse 2, it says, And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from, and then it says, the far north, the far north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. So the leader of these former Soviet states is described as being the prince of Russia, Moscow and Tubolsk, prince of all of Russia. It's interesting to me that about a hundred years ago, the communists came into power, Lenin and Stalin led the revolution in Russia. And when they came into power, all the time in Russia's history to that point, St. Petersburg had been the capital of Russia. When the communists took over just a hundred years ago, they moved the capital to Moscow. 
So Moscow only became the capital 100 years ago. And here in this prophecy, the prince of Russia is described as being the prince of Moscow, the capital, to Tobolsk. Just a little interesting aside there. 2,600 years ago, Russia and the Soviet states were nothing. They were nothing. They were not the arch enemies of James Bond. They were nothing. They were just agricultural farmland. If you went there, there were no cities. It was just farmland, very sort of savage, arrow area with a few small villages. Just nothing there. There's really no reason to be there. They weren't you know, looking for oil or gas or anything at that time. So there was no reason to be there. There wasn't a lot going on. It certainly wasn't a mighty empire. And at this time, 2,600 years ago, the idea of Russia, that area, becoming a military superpower would have been inconceivable. Inconceivable. I really want you to understand this as we go through this prophecy. We have a 2,600-year-old prophecy that's going to describe Russia as a military superpower at a time when it was practically nothing. Nothing at all. And that's why until very recently, people read the Bible and said, this has got to be allegorical. It's got to be a word picture. It just can't be literal. You know, it would be like us going, be careful, because in the future, all the world will tremble before the military might of Quebec. You know, it would be something like that. If anybody here is French Canadian, I'm sorry, but we're in BC. So I'm sure you understand, okay? And that's why some of your Bibles don't even mention Rosh. Because the translators thought, oh, it's allegorical. It's got to be something else. We've got to figure out how to translate it to something else. But a lot can change in 2,600 years. A lot can change in 2,600 years. And this is not an isolated incident. The more you study biblical prophecy, the more you're going to find what a mistake it is to dismiss things in the Bible simply because you don't understand them or because they seem too fantastic or impossible. Because time and time again, especially in the area of prophecy, the Bible is proven to be literal. And we have seen these things come to pass in our lifetime. Take the Bible literally, do the research, and you'll find the truth. In verse 4, the Lord keeps speaking. He's speaking to Gog, the leader of Magog. And he says, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, underline horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. When the Lord says of Russia, he says, I'm going to put a hook in your mouth and lead you out. The idea is that Russia might be sort of pulled into this conflict. It might not really want to go into it, but maybe it has some sort of military treaty with the countries involved, and it sort of gets pulled into this conflict against its will. But God basically says, I'm going to pull you into this conflict. And when this is written 2,600 years ago, Ezekiel is writing with the vocabulary of the day, And he's writing with the paradigms of the day. Just an example would be, how in the world would Ezekiel 2,600 years ago describe like an iPhone? There's not even the words in his language to describe what it is. And so when we read this, we have to factor that in and figure out what is he actually trying to communicate? What is he seeing in this vision the Lord has given him? So when he uses the word horses, in the original language, it just means to skip. It can mean a horse, but only a horse that is leaping. You might want to write the word in your Bible next to horses, the word leaper. It can be translated as a swallow from its rapid flight. In Jeremiah 8, the same word is translated as turtle dove or crane, but the idea is a bird that flies in a certain way as though it's leaping. 
Modern Bible scholars suggest that what Ezekiel is attempting to describe in 600 B.C. with his vocabulary and his paradigms is simply a helicopter. He's trying to describe helicopters. When the Bible was translated 400 years ago, the word horse was the best warfare paradigm they could come up with when they were translating the King James Bible. Today, it's considered much more likely that he's really referring to helicopters. Horseman is also an interesting word because the original word parash means a steed as stretched out to a vehicle, not single nor for mounting, by implication a driver in a chariot. So 400 years ago, the best word they could come up with for this was the word horseman, but it means a lot more than that. It means that someone is driving something into battle. Our modern translation, scholars suggest, would simply be something like a tank or an APC. An APC is an armored personnel carrier that takes troops to the front lines. So the word for horse and horseman are very nimble. They can be translated a number of ways. And we would hold that these are descriptions of modern warfare because this prophecy has not yet come to pass and he's describing scenes of war. And it's not really likely that people are invading Israel with swords and shields on horses. Probably not that likely. This is given by a prophet working with the vocabulary and paradigms of his time. So verse 5, who's with Gog? Who's coming down against Israel with Gog? We see Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. We know that Persia is just modern-day Iran. Did you know that in the 70s, Iran was considered Israel's greatest ally in the Middle East? Its greatest ally. Iran was led by the Shah of Iran, who was actually a very westernized, very progressive leader. If you go online and look up photos of just life in Iran during the 70s, it's just staggering. It's so much more advanced in the 70s than it is even now. Then in 1979, the Shah of Iran was deposed His whole administration and government was overthrown by Muslim radicals, and that's when they installed the system with the Ayatollahs. Some of you may remember Ayatollah Khomeini comes into power in 1979, and almost overnight they go from this westernized progressive society to this very, very radicalized, extreme Sharia law Muslim society overnight, which is essentially what they still are. And along with that, along with the implementation of radical Islam, came the radical Islam hatred for Israel. And so Iran suddenly became an arch, arch enemy of Israel. In just 1979, Persia went from an ally to the arch enemy of Israel. I don't really want to get into too much about Gomer because it's not really part of the story, but I will tell you it's the area just north of Turkey. If you look in Genesis 10, it mentions the tribe of Gomer going up in that direction. They settle there, and eventually they just keep pushing north, and and they would just become what we would call the Germanic tribes. Not the actual nation of Germany, but the peoples in the area of Germany, Austria, and that part of Europe. Many linguists tell us that throughout the years, Gomer simply became Gomerni, and then Germany out of that and that's where the word Germany comes from and then it says the house of Tagarma and that's simply modern-day Turkey write that down modern-day Turkey and the Armenian peoples in that area it's interesting that in 1949 Turkey became the first majority Muslim country in the Middle East to recognize the state of Israel they had a close and positive political and military relationship with Israel. They were very close allies. Israelis were there literally helping them with their fighter jets. They were sending energy to Israel. It was a great relationship. And then as recently as the late 2000s, the current prime minister of Turkey, 
ended up being a guy who was much more radical than his predecessors, and he basically subscribes to the idea of hating Israel. Uh, he's more of a radical Muslim kind of guy. And so he began speaking fiery rhetoric against Israel, damaging relations with Israel. In 2009, they pulled their embassies from Israel, and now former very close allies are now no longer friends. They're pretty much enemies. That happened very, very recently. Uh, these things are shaping up They're coming together right in front of our eyes right now. Verse 7, God is still speaking to Gog, the leader here. He says, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. The word guard there is actually supplier. It means supplier. So God is telling Gog, he's telling this leader of Russia, he says, you are going to be the military supplier to these nations, to Persia and all these other nations, Iran and all these places. Just remember, this is 2,600 years ago. God says, Russia's going to become a military superpower. Oh, that's not specific enough for you? Russia is going to be the military superpower supplying arms to Iran. It's pretty specific. Pretty specific. This is what the word of God says. So if Gog, this, this leader of Russia, coming from the far north, he's going to be the main weapon supplier to this country, he's going to have to be a military superpower. They're not making sticks that they can throw at Israel. They're a military superpower. Do you remember only a few decades ago, I remember this as a kid, do you remember Boris Yeltsin, who's the prime minister of Russia? Boris Yeltsin was like a caricature of a Russian prime minister. And when I say a caricature, Boris Yeltsin was like this chubby, red-cheeked drunk of a leader. He was like a jolly drunk Russian, just about the most non-threatening world leader that you could have. You know, it's like, how are we going to negotiate with Russia? Just bring vodka. You'll probably get what you want out of the deal. No real threat at all. The Soviet Union had collapsed, and nobody was looking at Russia like they're a big problem. They're like, man, those guys are done. Just two decades ago. What a quick turnaround, right? Suddenly you have a prime minister, I mean president, I mean prime minister. Yeah, he's prime minister right now, okay? He's been president and prime minister as well. You have Vladimir Putin, ex-KGB, hardline Russian motherland military strength, Russian old school glory guy back in power. Very intentional and I will tell you is probably the smartest world leader in the world right now. The guy's brilliant. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's very intentional about what he does. How quickly things change. How quickly things change. And how interesting that this all coalesces and comes together at the same time. Verse 8. We read this before. I hope you underlined. After many days, you should have that underlined. You will be visited. You'll be summoned. In the latter years, should have that underlined, the last days, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So he's saying, I'm going to bring you, Russia, down to attack Israel. He's making it clear that he's talking about Israel, who's been brought back into the land. Verse 9, you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, this is what Gog, the leader of Russia, is going to think to himself. I will go up against a land of unwalled villages, underline unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling, and then underline, without walls and having neither bars nor gates. So 2,600 years ago, Ezekiel is seeing this. He's seeing the city. And what he's thinking is, 
this is really weird. This city doesn't, the city doesn't have a wall around it. Houses don't have, have gates and, and bars. This is really strange because in those days, if you built a, a city, the first thing you would do is build a wall around the city. You would fortify it. You would strengthen your position. You would put bars and strong gates because if you didn't, someone would come along and invade you and take everything you had pretty quickly. That was step one. You would build the walls before you even built the houses. You would fortify your position. But Ezekiel looks and he says, this is weird. I'm seeing a city with no walls, no bars, no gates. Well, today, that's not how we take care of our cities. We don't build walls. We have satellites. We have drones. We have fighter jets. We have radar. We have all kinds of other measures that we use to defend our cities today. We don't build walls around them anymore. Verse 12, this is what Gog is going to make a plan to do. Verse 12, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against, and then underline, the waste places that are again inhabited. And against a people, God is being redundant here on purpose, gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the, and then underline, midst of the land. Some of your Bibles will say center of the earth or center of the world. As we've said repeatedly, Israel was a wasteland for almost 2,000 years. Then its people come from around the world, back into the land. 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. They've acquired livestock and goods, so this nation, Israel, has prospered. And if you go to Israel now, you will see they are prospering enormously, and they're set up to do it even more in the future. And that last line where it says, the midst of the land is more accurately translated as the center of the world. And some of your Bibles will say that. In the Hebrew, the word is literally the belly button. You're the belly button of the world. So from God's perspective, this little nation of Israel that is so small, just a sliver, sliver of a country, this little country is the center of the world from God's perspective. They have his undivided attention. His eyes are always upon them. And now we have the protests from the countries on the sidelines, the non-participants who see what Russia and all these countries are doing and cry foul. It says this in verse 13, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions. Write that. If your Bible says villages, write young lions is what it actually says. And then underline, will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to take away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? What's interesting about this verse is who these countries are, who the players are, who the nations are, who are protesting what's going on. And that sounds like a much more modern-day political scenario, doesn't it? We protest. This is our action. Sheba and Dedan, we know from ancient maps in the Old Testament, are just two cities in the modern country of Saudi Arabia. So apparently they're not allies at this point with Russia. Saudi Arabia at this point is not an ally of Russia. Tarshish, which makes you sound stupid no matter how you say it. I am saying it correctly, I promise. Tarshish is possibly, and I believe it is, Great Britain. Write that down, Great Britain. We believe that because ancient writers tell us that Tarshish was an island country that took a long time to sail to, but was rich in tin. And that's interesting because Britannia or Britain just means land of tin. The Phoenicians got tin from a city called Tarshish, and they described it as an island with sea traffic. Then it says the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions, which is very interesting because if you're watching the World Cup and you're a depressed England fan like I am, you know that the emblem for England is what? It's three lions. It's three lions. And most Bible scholars suggest that the term young lions are basically younger countries that came out of Great Britain. 
or were birthed out of Great Britain. This would be all the Commonwealth countries and even the United States, so places like Canada. And all these countries are protesting but not actually getting involved, which again seems very much par for the course in today's geopolitical landscape. I think you'd agree. We're appalled and outraged. Are you going to do anything? We're not that outraged. We're Facebook and Twitter and hashtag outraged. We're not get on a plane and do something about it outraged. But make no mistake, we protest in the strongest terms. Literally sounds like what the United Nations does all the time. We've issued a strongly worded statement. Verse 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day... When, and then underline, my people Israel dwell safely. So Israel's in the land, they're secure, they've got their own country. Will you not know it? The idea is it's going to be obvious because Israel's going to be back in their land. They're going to be in control of their land. Then you will come from your place out of the, there it is again, the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses. We looked at what that word means. A great company and a mighty army. So God still believes Israel are his people in these last days. Let me just say this. It is sad that there are so many people who profess to be Christians who are lining up in support of the Palestinians against Israel. Let me tell you why that's sad. Because in the word of God, God says, these are my people. He says, these are not people. These are my people. He doesn't say this is their land. He says, this is my land. And I am going to do what I want to do with my people and my land. As your pastor, let me counsel you. Do not take sides against the people God calls my people. Do not take sides against the people God calls my people. It's going to be awkward on Judgment Day, okay? It's not going to make you lose your salvation, but you will regret it. If there's one thing you want to do, you want to be on God's side when the fighting starts. Trust me. Trust me. Verse 16, he says, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the, when? Latter days, the last days, that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. So God's purpose in all of this is that the world would know him. Something is going to happen here and everyone's going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's something to this whole Bible thing. There's something to this God guy that the crazy people have been talking about. There's something going on. Verse 17, thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Who would have thought it would be Russia? Verse 18, and it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Not a good thing. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake, underlying earthquake in the land of Israel. How great? So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Speaking scientifically, 
this is what we would call a freaking huge earthquake, okay? <laughs> That's the scientific terminology. Verse 21, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Boom. Remember, Ezekiel is writing with the vocabulary and paradigms of his time 2,600 years ago. Verse 23, God says, Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. They won't repent, but they're going to start realizing that something really serious is going on. When God says every man's sword will be against his brother, he's telling us that when these nations come against Israel, something's going to happen. Someone's going to misfire. Someone's going to be confused. And they're literally going to end up attacking each other in the confusion, in the fog of war. God is going to make that happen. It's also interesting that in verse 22, the Lord says he will rain down on these invading armies, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. This could be old school fire and brimstone. I mean, we know God is packing that from the Old Testament. Or this could be, write this down, a nuclear strike. Nuclear strike. And I believe it's a nuclear strike. And chapter 39 is going to make that really clear. When we get to the end of chapter 39, you're going to be in agreement. This is a nuclear strike, I promise. A hundred years ago, Just a hundred years ago, you would have considered this allegorical because we just didn't have the technology for anything like this to happen. It would have to be allegorical because how could the nations of the earth see this take place? How could they all see this happening? Well, now you can just turn on your TV. You can hop online. There'll be people filming it on their cell phones, posting it to YouTube as it's happening. That's where technology is right now, right now. Chapter 39 just continues with the same prophecy. It says, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you from the, there it is again, far north, far north. Just go north from Israel till you can't go north anymore. You're in Russia. And you'll notice that God just keeps hammering the point that Gog is the far north. He's very specific. Whenever God is repetitive in his word, it's because he wants you to not miss something. He says, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And there's something in verse 2 that gets lost in a lot of our translations. So I want to read it to you from the King James Version. I know in this room there's somewhere there's somebody saying, I told you it's the only right one. I mean, we know, we know that the King James Bible is the version Jesus used, and it's also the one the Holy Spirit uses to prophesy, as we've spoken about before. He only speaks in King James English. In the King James, verse 2 reads like this. It's on your outline. And I will turn thee back and leave but, and then underline the sixth part of thee, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. So when this happens, when God responds to this attack, His response is so devastating that only one out of six invading troops is left alive when God is done with them. Possibly only one-sixth of those countries is left standing. That's what God's response is like. Do you know that if you're a Jew in Russia, you are a persecuted person? 
you are a persecuted person. If you're a believer in Russia, you have to be careful. You can't just open a church and start handing out flyers. You have to do it very much under the radar because it's still not an open and free country. It's just interesting. Then in verse 3, God says, I will knock the bow, underline bow, out of your left hand and cause the arrows, underline arrows, to fall out of your right hand. You might want to make a note in your Bibles where it says bow, just write launcher. And when it says arrows, just write missiles. And if you were going to launch anything 2,600 years ago, you were going to do it with a bow. It was the only way you were going to launch something. And that was the only paradigm Ezekiel had. So he sees something flying from a soldier. It's got to be a bow. It's what he's thinking. And the word here for arrows is interesting because it just means a piercer, an arrow, a wound, a thunderbolt, a shaft, a spear. It's really anything that's launched and flies through the air. So apparently these Russians and these invading forces are going to try and launch something or things, and it's not going to work, God is going to knock it down. I'm going to speculate, but I'm going to speculate that God is literally going to knock down their nuclear weapons mid-flight onto their own territory. I think you're going to think that that's a possibility too when we're done. Verse 4, he says, You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. Man, when God gets mad, he's epic. I will give you to the birds of prey and every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live, and then underline in security in the coastlands. And they shall know that I am the Lord. So there's going to be some people, some people on the sidelines living in what the Bible calls the coastlands. And in Hebrew, 2,600 years ago, there wasn't even a word for other continents. Just no concepts of that, really. And so they would use this word coastlands, which just means a, a habitable spot, a desirable dry land, a coast, an island, a country, isle, or island. So the idea is when this is all going down, there are people, probably those peaceful protesters on the side, who are thinking they're out of the conflict, they're not involved, and they didn't do anything to help Israel. God says, hey, you guys are going to get some collateral damage for just standing on the sidelines and not coming to help my people Israel. Could that be referring to places like America and Canada? Very possibly. Very, very possibly. But the good news is, if you're a believer, you're already gone to be with Jesus in the rapture. Verse 7, So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And then underline this in verse 8. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. It's going to happen. And then it gets really, really interesting. Pen in hand here, verse 9. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and, and then underline, set on fire and burn the weapons. Both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for, and then underline, seven years. Seven years. We'll come back to that. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forests because they will, and then underline, make fires with the weapons. He's being redundant on purpose. And they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them says the Lord God. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers. So people are not going to be able to go past this area for some reason because this is where all the dead bodies are buried, but those dead bodies are going to be a hazard. People will not be able to go through that area. 
because there they will bury Gog and his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the Valley of Hamon Gog, which just means the Horde of Gog. For, and then underline, seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order, and then underline, to cleanse the land. Verse 13, indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. And all those people who are going to be burying are all the people in these other nations who came against Israel. So a lot's going to happen, but all that devastation is going to take place outside of Israel. All these invading troops that are in Israel, they're pretty much all going to be killed. Six of them are going to leave running for their lives. There's going to be massive devastation in these attacking countries. All their people are going to be burying their dead day and night. There's a few things here you need to see, and then we're going to wrap it up. In verses 9 and 10, we see that whatever these weapons are, They're going to supply energy and heat to Israel for seven years. Seven years, a very odd number. Notice verse 9. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Conventional weapons can't be burned for seven years. You can't burn a cannon for seven years. You can't burn a Hummer for seven years. But if the weapons are nuclear in nature well suddenly it's a very very different conversation then we notice before they do anything they have to wait seven months israel can't just go out into these countries that are now devastated and pillage and ransack them and get their weapons and bring them back they have to wait seven months why well because the air is probably radioactive it's not safe to go out yet it says in verse 14 they will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it at the end of seven months they will make a search so they can't go out into the land to inspect it right away they have to wait seven months which is really odd unless there's something like radioactive exposure at play and then notice who does the burying who does the burying is it just anybody who does it They're going to use professionals. In verse 14, it says, they will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. Some of your Bibles will call those professionals men of continual employment, while some will call them men regularly employed. But here's the idea. Whoever these men are who are passing through, taking care of burying the bodies and the remains of the deceased enemies, they do it professionally. It's their job. It's their full-time occupation. It's not something where everybody in Israel can just chip in, grab a shovel, and start burying the dead. We also read that during this time, if you find a bone, you don't touch it. You just mark it, and you let the professionals take care of it. Notice verse 15. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamona. Thus they shall cleanse the land. So even after seven months have passed, it still won't be safe to just touch a bone that you might find because they still might be radioactive in all likelihood. You know, I don't know if they still do this, but in the military, they used to train all soldiers in procedures for dealing with nuclear, chemical, or biological warfare situations in the aftermath. And when you go into an area that's been attacked, the military would give you all these procedures to follow. And one of the things you would have to do is you would have to mark any remains that you found, but they would tell you you never, ever, 
ever touch them. You would have those little flags that they use sort of to mark electrical lines and pipes under the ground. You would have those little flags and you would just put it by the remains and then the professionals in the area would come by and deal with those remains while they're in their hazmat suits. That is exactly the scenario that Ezekiel is describing 2,600 years ago. There was no scenario in his day that could have played out where this would have happened. No scenario. It was literally impossible for that to happen in his time, in his day, in his context. You'll also notice that all of the bodies, can they just be buried wherever they're fine? Can they just dig a hole and bury them? No, they all have to be buried in one place. They can't just bury them whenever because they're going to be contaminating the ground all over the place. So every remain, every body has to go to this place, the Valley of Hamongog, and be buried in this one specific place. And people can't just walk by there because all those bodies are there and they're radioactive. People can't go by there. Now, in the rest of Ezekiel 39, you're going to find that when this happens, a revival breaks out in, in Israel. Israel begins to recognize that the God of their scriptures really is on their side. They don't all turn to Jesus at that point. They don't all come to faith, but it starts the process that leads to the entire nation of Israel turning back to Jesus during that tribulation period. And we can just read that on your own time. But it's interesting for me that when we look at the world stage right now, Israel and Iran are arch enemies. If you don't know what's going on, Iran is in a frantic race to build nuclear weapons. Their specific stream of radical Islam is so radical that they believe that if they destroy the nation of Israel, it will usher in the coming of their sacred imam, their version of the Messiah. People don't understand this. When people say, Iran and Israel, you need to negotiate, they don't understand. Iran philosophically, in their faith, is prepared to die in order to destroy Israel. If they get a nuclear weapon, they will launch it, knowing full well Israel will detect it on radar and shoot one back at them. They do not care because for them, destroying Israel is worth more than their own lives. When you understand that, you understand the stupidity of believing that a diplomatic solution is possible. There is no diplomatic solution when someone wants to kill you and is willing to die in order to kill you. You don't have anything that you can threaten them with anymore. That's what's going on. Israel is in a frantic race to figure out how they're going to respond. So they're sending agents to plant viruses in their nuclear plants to set back their nuclear program. This is going on all the time. They're assassinating Iranian scientists to delay the process. But there is a red line, and only the Israeli military brass knows what that red line is, that if Iran reaches a certain point in the development of this weapon, Israel will strike, even if nobody else is with them. That's the, where we are right now. That's where Iran, Persia, and Israel at right now in our world. Right now we're in our world. Russia is one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. They are one of the world's largest, one of the world's three largest weapons suppliers. And their specialty, by the way, is supplying weapons to countries that have sanctions or embargoes against them by the United Nations. The specialty of Russia is supplying guys like Syria, people like Iran, dictatorships with weapons. That's how they make their big money. That's the reality of the world right now. Russia has its eye on expanding its military and political power, very recently highlighted by their invasion and conquering of the Crimean region of the Ukraine. Three years ago, Russia, you might not remember this, goes into the country of Georgia, the former Soviet state, 
rides around with their tanks and their army, shoots up a bunch of stuff and goes back. Why? Vladimir Putin's dipping his toe in the water to see what happens when I cross the line. Oh, nothing? Three years later, he invades Crimea. What happens? Oh, nothing? There is no way in the world, this is not biblical, this is just political scientific analysis. Vladimir Putin is not going to stop at Crimea. He is not going to stop at Crimea. If you think he is, you're out of your mind. His dream is literally, because he's an old USSR glory days guy, his dream is to reassemble the USSR, Russia and all the former Soviet states. That's his dream, to return Russia to glory. Magog, Meshach, Tubal, bring it all together under his leadership, Prince of Russia. That's our world today. You know, it it blows my mind that we don't even realize how shocking it is that in today's world, Russia, in 2014, invaded another country and took over their land. Like, I don't think we, we even really understand how shocking that is. This is not the 1940s, World War II. This is 2014. And someone just did it old school. They just invaded a country and added it to their own. It's, it's pretty shocking. Turkey is now an enemy of Israel after being its closest ally in the Middle East. America has its first anti-Israel president since 1948. Places like Iraq, Libya, and Syria are all falling under control of Muslim extremist radical groups. The whole world is basically on the side of the Palestinians in that disagreement. Man, if you want to share an unpopular opinion, just share with any of your friends what I told you today about, yeah, I'm with Israel. What? What? It's not a popular opinion. This is all the sort of thing where Jesus would say to us, he would say, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus would say, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? I want to talk to you about the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the day many of us know as Palm Sunday. People are waving palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Many of us don't realize that the Bible had prophesied in the book of Daniel hundreds of years beforehand the exact day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem as the Messiah King. And he prophesied it in a way that anybody who was Jewish who studied the scriptures would have understood. They all would have understood it to the day. And there are maybe a few thousand people there on that day when Jesus rides in. And we think it's awesome. The whole city's there. There's a few thousand people. Why does that matter? It's Passover weekend. Every able-bodied Jewish male in the world is supposed to be in Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has swelled, historians tell us, to probably between two to three million people. It's probably around 3,000 there to welcome Jesus. It's probably around three million in the city at that time that believed what the word of God said about Jesus. And that's why they were there. Read the Bible story of that. You'll notice the disciples don't go out and hand out flyers. They don't go gather a crowd for Jesus. Nobody announces that Jesus is going to do that. But those people are there. Why are they there? Because they believed the prophecy from Daniel and they believed that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem that day. That's why they're there. There's only a few thousand And after Jesus rides into Jerusalem, as those few thousand people cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, he looks at the temple where the masses are gathering, hundreds of thousands of people, and they're all so busy with their rituals of their faith that they're completely missing what's happening right in front of their eyes. The Messiah is there. Their God is there in the flesh right in front of them. Why are they missing it? Well, because 
though most of them would claim to believe the prophecies in the Bible, would claim to believe the Word of God, they didn't actually believe it could ever happen in their lifetime. It was one of those things that would just happen one day, one day. And as it got to that day, they just said, oh, one day. In Luke 19, it says this, speaking of Jesus. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Why? Jesus says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize it. You didn't recognize it. Jesus expected them to know when he was going to show up because he had given them everything they needed in his word to recognize the day, to recognize the time, to recognize the season that he would be there. And he expected them to believe what he wrote in his word. Several thousand recognized the day. Several million did not. Only a small fringe group who were probably ridiculed by their friends and family as they left their homes that day with their palm branches and said, the king is coming today. I don't think most people said, cool. They were like, you're going to feel pretty stupid when after four hours there's still nobody there. Really, you're, you're going to go wait for the king? He's coming? Okay, great. They would have been called fringe, radical, over-the-top Bible literalists. But you know what? They saw the king. They saw him with their own eyes. And so if you're here today and Jesus is not your savior, Jesus lays out in his word the true reality of all things. Just as surely as Ezekiel 38 and 39 are coming to pass right now, right before our eyes, so too every single word in the Bible is true. And the Bible tells us that we've all sinned. That means we've all rejected God in our own way and that the only appropriate punishment for that is death. But the Bible says instead of that punishment... God sent his only son, Jesus, to be punished and to die in our place. And instead of getting what we deserve, we're welcomed into the family of God. We're invited into a relationship with God. We're promised eternity in heaven with him, the one who holds the past, the one who holds the future. And the most meaningful life on earth is promised to us as well. If Jesus is not your savior, he's not your God, don't leave here today. Don't leave here today not being at peace with the one who holds the future in his hands. Give your life to him, and you're going to have a chance to do that in just a minute. For the rest of us, I believe Jesus is calling us to recognize the times that we're living in. And because I believe that, I feel empowered to be blunt and, and honest out of love for you. This is not the time. These are not the days. This is not the season to be casual about your faith. This is not the time to be 90% sure that you're right with God. This is not the time to be storing up for yourselves treasures on earth and spending your life distracted by all the things that you may very well be leaving behind very, very soon. This is not the time to be casual about inviting people to hear about Jesus and the gospel. This is not the time to be casual about knowing and living in and believing God's word. This is not the time to show up at church once a month when you can fit it in. 
This is not the time to put your kingdom ahead of God's. It's time for you and I to be serious about living for Jesus because there are much bigger things at play in the world today than just the things that the world tells us we should care about. Everything Jesus wrote about his first coming, he said three times as much about his second coming. The question is this, do you think Jesus expects us to recognize the hour of his next visitation? Do you think he expects us to be ready? I do. I do. And I don't know about you, but if taking the words of Jesus about his second coming literally makes me part of a fringe, crazy group of believers, then call me crazy. Because I'd rather be considered crazy than miss what God is doing right in front of my eyes. Please don't waste your life being casual about Jesus. Time is running out. I couldn't be more excited about that. Time is running out. But God has told us exactly how it's all going to go down. And there's no reason for us to be alarmed or taken by surprise. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? First thing I want to ask is if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to deal with the fact that you have just heard something that is 2,600 years old. Nobody is arguing that fact, that what is written is 2,600 years old. (laughs) You're seeing this prophecy come to pass right before your eyes. You have to deal with that reality and the implications of that. That the word of God is true, it is alive, it is supernatural, and it comes from somewhere that's not here. And if he can be that specific about world history 2,600 years in advance, then you can trust what he says about you needing him. And you can trust what he says that he will save you if you ask. That he will bring you into his family if you ask. That he will give your life meaning if you ask. If that's you today, please don't leave here without giving your life to God. Please don't leave here without giving your life to God. Then for the rest of us who are believers, I want to encourage you. Just as we said at the beginning, if God can call world history 2,600 years in advance, with precise specificity, if he can do that, then I think we can trust he'll keep his promises to us. I think we can trust he has the power and the ability to do that. So I want to pray for you that the Lord would free you and I from every trace of doubt and bring us all the way back to the words of that beautiful children's song, he's got the whole world in his hands, the whole world, past, present, and future. And he has you, and he has me, in his hands. Life may seem chaotic at times. It may seem there's no pattern, no rhyme, no reason, but everything will arrive exactly where God wants it to. And ultimately, you and I will arrive where he wants us to in his presence. That's the ultimate goal. 
That's the end of the journey. It's not even here. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that where there is doubt, you would pour out faith. That where there is doubt, you would pour out peace. We're okay with the reality that we won't understand everything on this side. So we pray for your peace that your word says is greater even than our need to understand. Father, I pray for faith to take your word at face value, to believe what you say, and that, Father, we would be confident that when the world seems to rage in chaos, all that's happening is exactly what you said would happen, which means we can trust that the next thing you said would happen will happen, that we'll be going to be with you. From your own lips, Jesus, you said when you see these things take place, lift up your eyes to the heavens because your redemption is drawing near. Father, help us not to miss what you've revealed to us in your word with incredible clarity, Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 